0: hello listeners. welcome to the Labor and Know Your Rights podcast brought to you by the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first. Today we'll be discussing more myths. Our first myth today is unions are actually ran by labor bosses. Regardless of the writer's intention, use of these terms bring at least two things to mind. The first is that of organized crime, which I'll be addressing in a separate myth later. The second presumption is of a dictatorship of one individual, or group, over the entire union organization. For a deeper understanding, we have to look at how unions operate, so we can appreciate, first, why these terms are biased and unhelpful, and second, to identify some real challenges that do take place within unions that many people, including pro-union people, often try to sweep under the rug. Unions are structured in a hierarchy. At the base, there's a local union that individuals join. Its size can range from a few dozen to thousands, depending on the union itself. It may or may not be responsible for negotiating a contract. For example, there are a very large employer, say Ford Motor Company, with plants all over the country. If there is a very large employer, there may be a master agreement which covers major items that would affect all the workers working in different facilities of the same company. Supplemental agreements for specific plants. Also, a local union may represent workers at several different companies in a specific geographical area, sometimes in the same industry and sometimes not. The local union may be a regional or district body that represents many states, which may have significant or be virtually irrelevant. It may be a body that joins together several local unions in the same geographical area, negotiates contracts, and provides representational assistance. There is also the national union, or that often called the international union, the term international union goes back to the 19th century when U.S.-based unions began organizing outside the country. The national or international union is composed of the local union. The national or international holds a convention normally every three to five years where the leadership is chosen and major decisions are made. The leadership of a union is chosen through an election. Let's look first at the local union. Normally, elections are held on the basis of one member, one vote. A nomination process is established and the election takes place on a predetermined date. The election is normally for the top officers, which include the president, secretary-treasurer, vice president. Depending on the size of the local union, the elected leaders may choose to hire an individual to oversee the day-to-day operations of the organization. The person may be called the executive director or general manager. It is important to be aware of this because many of the elected officers of the local union continue to work full-time and can only do union work on the job when there is a contractual agreement with the employer that permits time away from work for union business. Otherwise, these individuals do their union work off the clock and for no pay. At the international level, the general officers are often elected at the convention. In some very rare cases, officers are chosen by a vote of the membership as a whole. If chosen at the convention, it is based on delegated votes. Unions as political organization. What is important to gather from this is that, as opposed to corporations, unions are political organizations in the sense that leadership is elected and there is membership engagement in the process. Optimally, a union member, if they choose to get involved with the local union, has an opportunity through meetings and voting to participate in the life of the union. Many members choose not to get involved, however. They may not have the time, they may feel the union is irrelevant to the rest of their life, or they may be obstacles within the union that discourage their participation. The point here. Before we proceed, is to understand that in most cases there are opportunities for democratic involvement. That said, why does the term union boss or labor boss stick around? It's not simply due to the power of the propaganda by anti-worker media, though this is a very important factor. There are two other reasons. One, most people have no clue how unions function. Because of the elected delegates process in union elections at the international or national level, the power to influence conventions elections is found at the level of the local union leadership. This means that if you happen not to be in the favor of the local union leadership, your voice may not be heard unless you have organized a significant enough constituency such that you cannot be ignored. The top leadership of most unions... By having access to resources can hold those as a trump card over the head of a local union. For instance, let's say that your union is facing a major fight with an employer. Perhaps your union is relatively small or perhaps just doesn't have the level of resources to to conduct a struggle. So you go to the national or international and ask for support. In the best of all possible worlds, the national international leadership will evaluate the situation objectively and give support because of that evaluation. But that doesn't always happen. Another factor that has influenced the lack of democracy in some unions is that too many unions attempt to emulate the employers, a phenomenon known as business unionism. It emerged in the late 19th century. Because of this, union leaders started to live markedly different lives from their members. It became so different that the thought of returning to the workplace became inconceivable, and as a result, they did what they could to hold onto power. Most unions lack term limits, so it is quite possible for someone to be elected and, through the power of the incumbency, retain power for years, if not decades. Such a situation turns democracy into nothing more than a formality at best. It is important to be clear that nothing stated here suggests all or even most unions lack democracy. The challenge concerning democracy is one that faces all unions and, for that matter, all political organizations, including nation states. Many unions have addressed issues of internal democracy through their election process, internal education, as well as their culture of internal debate. Nevertheless, the flag of caution must always fly. What conclusions can we draw from this? The most important is that in any political organization there are both opportunities as well as dangers when it comes to democracy. But the most effective counter to undemocratic practices rests in the educated and active membership. When the membership of any organization, or country for that matter, is lulled to sleep, not encouraged to participate, or chooses not to participate, the danger of tyranny becomes a real threat. Sections of the mainstream media, along with the right-wing opponents of unions, have seized on democratic practices where they exist to disparage unions with the brush that paints all or most union leaders as labor bosses. Ironically, one rarely hears major employers described in the media as corporate bosses or other such terms. In fact, over the years, no matter what one may think about a particular owner or employer They are normally referred to in the mainstream media as chief executive officers, or in other cases, chairpersons of the board of directors. This despite the fact that corporations do not even put up pretense of being democratic organization. Unions were good once, but we don't need them any longer. When someone claims that unions were good once, what they're saying is that the days of crude industrialization, hard working conditions, and miserable pay are over. There's a grudging acknowledgement from the right that unions were responsible for the advancements that took place. The significant size of union movements had an impact on working conditions, benefits, and wages and salaries, not only in the unionized sectors of the county but in the non-union sector as well. At its best, labor unions was a mass cause supported not only by union members, but also by people who weren't members or might never end up in labor unions. So what has changed? From the 1930s through the early 1970s, various mass movements, including but not limited to the labor movement, secured many social, economic, and political protections through the introduction of laws and regulations. In the case of labor unions many of the victories won through the collective bargaining were codified in contracts that most people never thought would or could be reversed. By the early 1970s, however, another tendency emerged as stagflation. Economic stagnation plus inflation gripped the country and public support for unions began to change in ways that continued to adversely affect workers. Competition from more vital economies had a critical impact on the United States, which had been the dominant capitalist economy since World War II. By the 1970s, however, it had lost much of its dynamism as new technologies that outmarched America's older technologies emerged in the Federal Republic of Germany, Japan, and Sweden. A variant of neoliberalism was implemented in New York City in 1975 during the city's fiscal crisis. By the early 1980s, neoliberalism was widely known through its articulation by British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher, and President Ronald Reagan. Neoliberalism was an economic approach that suggested that the entire framework constructed under the New Deal was wrong. It was based on the powerful myth that the so-called free market was the solution to every economic problem. Government interference, as neoliberalists called it, threw the free market off-kilter. At its core, neoliberalism believes In the removal of all obstructions to the accumulation of maximum profit, therefore adherence to neoliberalism, promote deregulation, including environmental deregulation, casualization, privatization, free trade, the elimination of labor unions and other worker organizations, and the elimination of the concept of the common or public good. In the midst of the 1970s, upheaval and the emergence of neoliberalism A little-noticed change was underway. The living standard of the average U.S. working person was beginning to drop. Since the 1970s, this decline hasn't abated. Not surprisingly, there is a correlation between the decline of the living standard of workers and the decline of unions. In July 2011, the American Sociological Review published a study on the relationship between union decline and wage inequality that concluded, in the early 1970s, unions were important for delivering middle-class incomes to working-class families, and they enlivened politics by speaking out against inequality. These days, there aren't big institutional actors who are making the case for greater economic equality in America. Therefore, labor unions were not only critical in the eradication of of the horrendous conditions of the early 20th century, but the absence was directly linked to the decline in living standards and the re-emergence of forms of economic conditions that many people had believed to be extinct. In considering the question of continued relevance of unions, it's useful to examine economic conditions generally as well as the actual conditions of work. One way to look at this is through the renewed growth of sweatshops along with the evolution of the retail industry. But first, let's consider a few points about the conditions of work that are often forgotten, ignored, or just taken for granted. When workers enter into a non-union workplace, they surrender their constitutional rights. There is no freedom of speech. If you speak out of turn, you can be punished and even terminated. Likewise, if you advocate for forming a labor union, you can be terminated. Even though it is illegal, most employers know the penalties for such terminations are minimal. There is no freedom of the press. If you issue your own publication, such as a flyer, you can be punished. There is no freedom of association. Unless you can prove to the NLRB that you are engaged in your statutory right to self-organization, you can be charged with insubordination and punished by your employer. There is no freedom of movement. If you are not in close proximity to your work area, and in some cases, if you are not at your workstation, you can be punished. You can be searched at any time when on the premises of work. You are guilty until proven innocent. An employer can terminate you for any reason or no reason as long as you cannot demonstrate that such termination was due to a violation of your statutory rights, such as against unlawful discrimination, a violation of the NLRA, Most of us don't reflect on the fact that in the absence of either special legislation or organization in the workplace, so-called property rights trump your personal civil liberties. And because most of us don't consciously think about this reality, we assume that if and when we're terminated or face a workplace injustice, there's a law to protect us. Usually there isn't. The non-existence of workplace rights that we would take for granted on the street demonstrates that unions are just as relevant as they ever were, particularly since there is no indication that Congress or most state legislatures will be taking steps to increase protection for workers, at least soon. Workers either have to rely on luck or they have to take steps through self-organization to guarantee that their rights and their voices are respected. The past is never really the past. Victory of progressive legislation in the mid-20th century, along with the rise of labor unions, led many to believe we were approaching a more humane workplace. The lack of constitutional rights in the workplace should disabuse everyone of that. But what has been more startling has been the return to workplace conditions reminiscent of the early 20th century. With the growth of neoliberalism, However, that began to change. Contracting out of work, or subcontracting, has risen to become a major factor of work life. Companies and government bodies choose to focus on what they call their core functions, and anything outside of the core is subject to being subcontracted. When it is subcontracted, the main employer is no longer concerned with legal obligations towards those workers. In the rush to cut costs, those costs associated with workers are always on the chopping block. As a result of these changes, we've witnessed the reemergence of sweatshops right here at home. There are many and varied examples. According to the National Mobilization Against Sweatshops in 1995, 72 Thai slaves were found working 22 hours a day under threat of physical violence inside a barbed wire facility in El Monte, California. What was thought of as a thing of the past has returned with a vengeance, albeit with a slightly different facade. In fact, sweatshops have entered the high-tech world through the importation of labor from places such as South Asia. The high-tech and financial segments of the economy have engaged in newer forms of sweatshops. In the original waves of sweatshops, legal standards were only part of the equation in overcoming them. Labor unions were the other. The famous International Ladies' Garment Workers' Union, a key union in organizing a largely female workforce in the sweatshops of the early 20th century, was a key factor in weakening sweatshops in the early to mid-20th century, but the change in the production process has made it both more likely that sweatshops could be reborn and also more difficult for unions to organize. Nevertheless, the labor union is the missing piece in ending sweatshops, and their relative absence from the scene, along with weakened government enforcement, has meant that it is a case of déjà vu. One effort that has sought to address the changes in working conditions brought on by neoliberalism has been the Justice for Janitors campaign for the Service Employees International Union. Though not organizing sweatshop workers, it is noteworthy as a campaign that developed in direct response to a change in the way the janitorial industry operated. With the growth of janitorial contractors, SEIU could not organize each contractor one at a time and expect to win unless they found a way to put pressure on the building owners and turn the entire matter into a public issue. With this approach, SEIU won some stunning victories. Activists examining the terrain of so-called post-industrial United States have been thinking about new approaches to organizing given the restructuring that has taken place in so many industries and the reemergence of sweatshop. Without a doubt, labor unions are not a thing for yesterday. They are every bit as relevant to the conditions facing workers today. Unions are only needed by workers who have problems and get into trouble. Implicit in this statement are two dangerous assumptions. First, it's fairly easy to stay out of trouble at work if you do the right thing and keep your nose clean, so to speak. And second, it reveals commonly held narrow view of union roles. Let's start with the question of trouble. This broad characterization is ultimately about power and authority, specifically, who has power and authority and who doesn't. But in a workplace, not only are non-organized workers powerless, but also trouble can arise from any number of sources. Trouble can arise from nebulous circumstances. It might be that a supervisor or manager simply has it out for you. It might arise out of some form of discrimination or favoritism, having to do with race, gender, ethnicity, sexual orientation, age, or religion. It might emerge because of An ongoing conflict about how things operate in the workplace might originate due to some arbitrary decision made by a supervisor. For those of you who think that they'll never get into trouble, they have to ask themselves a few questions. What happens if there is a new supervisor who doesn't care for me? What happens if the company is bought by someone else? If I'm in the public sector, what happens if a new administration is elected? What happens as I get older and can't perform my job the same way I did when I was 25? What happens if I'm injured on the job? What happens if a new technology is introduced? What happens if my shift is changed and my salary plummets? To assume that you're safe and sound is as naive as assuming that because you're a good driver, you'll never get in a car accident. It's comforting to know there are mechanisms to challenge unfair, unilateral, or biased actions. This doesn't guarantee you'll win, but it does provide for the possibility. Let's stop for a minute and explain something about the process that exists in most collective bargaining agreement contracts to handle problems, the grievance procedure. Here's a summary of how this works. An action is taken against a worker due to an alleged disciplinary infraction Or separately, the worker perceives there has been a violation of his or her rights as contained in the collective bargaining agreement. With the help of his union shop steward, the worker files agreements or formal complaint with his or her immediate supervisor. The supervisor has a certain amount of time to respond. If the worker disagrees with the response, he can appeal it to another level of management. The worker and his steward may have a meeting with the next level of management in hopes of resolving the problem. If the worker's grievance is denied, at this point there might be another level of purposes appeal within the company or organization, or the grievance might be taken to arbitration. Arbitration is a process along the lines of a less formal court. A neutral individual called an arbitrator is hired by both the company-slash-organization- and the labor union to decide on matters the two sides cannot resolve. The arbitrator makes his or her decision based on the wording of the contract, prior decisions, and past practices. Both sides may make arguments, submit legal briefs, and call witnesses. The arbitrator makes his or her decision after considering all available evidence, the credibility of both sides, and the history of the issue. In general, an arbitrator's decision cannot be appealed to a court of law. The decision is final. Due to the complexity of a legitimate grievance procedure, efforts can be exceedingly time-consuming and very demanding of both the grievant as well as union officials and staff. In addition, union staff and officials have a to perfect litigation skills to be competent representatives. In effect, this means they're prevented from doing other union activities that they might otherwise do. But there's also another side to the problem. Ours is a litigation society, and we assume that, first, there must be a lodge guaranteeing a proper resolution of every problem. And second, if we get a competent representative, more often than not, a lawyer, truth, justice, and the American way will assure our victory. The real world is a bit more complicated. This focus on litigation has led some unions to place a premium on hiring of attorneys rather than staff capable of organizing, educating, and mobilizing members. Alternatives When unions break out of the confines of workplace litigation, they engage in various activities that go beyond focusing exclusively on workers who are in trouble, such as ensuring workers have a voice at work giving workers a voice in the workplace actually speaks to resisting the authoritarian atmosphere of most work environments, something that workers take for granted but don't particularly enjoy. Unions, when thinking outside of the proverbial box, can also become genuine instruments of justice. An interesting example of the fight for one's own members and making a broader social statement occurred in the Late 1980s and early 1990s when Local 26 of the hotel restaurant employees now unite here in Boston engaged in a major struggle with key hotels in the city. During the 1980s, Local 26 had become well known as a fighting union that mobilized its members at contract time and reached out to the broader community for support. They were an exciting and path-breaking union. One of the issues they encountered within their membership was the fact that it was becoming far too expensive to live in Boston. The cost of housing, whether apartments or homes, was skyrocketing, and workers were being chased out of the city, forced in many cases to live in more distant suburban towns. They made a demand for the creation of a housing trust fund such that the members of Local 26 would have access to funds to afford a security deposit on an apartment, or a down payment on a home. They not only won this demand, which necessitated some changes in the laws by the way, but this effort took off ultimately resulting in the creation of a union affiliated and now independent organization known as the Neighborhood Assistance Corporation of America that fights predatory lenders and helps gain housing for lower income people. What's important to remember is that while the claim that unions only focus on those in trouble is particularly true, at the same time, it misses labor's amazing potential to broaden the fight for economic justice. Unions hold me back from advancing, and if I join, I will never be promoted. One of the central arguments employers make to discourage workers from joining or forming labor unions is that unions are an obstacle to individual advancement. In a non-union workplace, the employer's largely arbitrary behavior reigns supreme. Ironically, the employer's unregulated chance behavior may sometimes benefit a particular worker at a specific moment. Most U.S. workers depend on the personality and generosity of their bosses to survive and hopefully advance in the industry. But let's not forget what we've learned about the authoritarian world of work. As in any situation where only a few hold power, one's life largely depends on the whims of the elite clique that's running the show. If you're in favor of the ruling factions, you can survive and sometimes thrive. If you're not, another fate awaits you. While there may be personal policies in place at a non-union company, the employer isn't legally obligated to respect them, a common source of misunderstanding among workers who are not in unions. In such situations, the question comes down to who is more or less likely to gain from favoritism. Ask yourself, what are you prepared to do to obtain favoritism? So many workers are seduced by magical thinking, hoping against the odds they'll be able to work themselves into a position where they're in management's favor. Some take comfort in other people's success stories, but this is much like someone hitting the jackpot at Las Vegas Casino. The odds aren't in your favor. Moving from hope to structured fairness, a labor union seeks to win a collective bargaining agreement or contract with an employer. The fundamental purpose of the collective bargaining agreement is to oppose favoritism and to set work and salary standards, not to impede the advancement of a worker. But what do many employers say? Here's where it gets interesting. An employer will say something like, Hey, you know, I would love to give you some more money, a promotion, but the union stops me. Sorry. What's critical to understand is that many employers will hide behind the collective bargaining agreement or more accurately, the existence of the union to justify not doing things they wouldn't do otherwise. Suppose there's a promotional opportunity at your company, and your collective bargaining agreement stipulates that the person with the greatest seniority gets a job. It might say something like, after taking into account basic qualifications for the job, seniority will prevail. What does this mean? Normally it means that there are specific qualifications for the position and that you, the worker, need to be able to do X, Y, and Z proficiently. If you're unable to fulfill these requirements, seniority doesn't matter. You simply won't get the job. Many employers like to say that seniority is only the factor, but it almost never is. More often than not, an employer simply doesn't want to evaluate the skills and performance of a worker. They opt instead for the easy route, and then blame the union for why someone might have been better didn't get the job. It is fair to have a standard that includes seniority as a major factor in getting a job. Absolutely. Here's why. Person A might be an exceptional employee, but it's sometimes impossible to quantify such a subjective characteristic. If person A and person B can both do the job and neither has a mark against him or her, that is, disciplinary infractions, It stands to reason that the person with more experience should get the position. Person A might be exceptional, but his or her exceptional abilities don't necessarily mean he or she will do the job any better than person B. Further, it's possible that person A is actually exceptional because he or she has a more attractive personality, is more outgoing, or has other characteristics considered admirable, but that generally have nothing to do with job performance. Seniority also rewards dedication to an organization, particularly at a time in history when people frequently change jobs. The fact that someone stays on board reveals a loyalty that needs to be acknowledged. But more importantly, there's a frequent discrimination in the workplace, particularly against older workers and long-term workers. Employers want to move in younger workers who they see as more flexible and often cheaper. You started off on a job, and, for a specific period, you had a great relationship with your boss. Then, perhaps suddenly, something happened. You might not have known what that thing was exactly, but your relationship has now clearly taken a dive. Things aren't what they once were. Would you want your future to depend on such unpredictable circumstances, or would you want to have criteria that depends less on someone's mood and attitude and more on Something approaching objectivity? I'd like to thank you, the listener, for making this podcast possible. We can be reached at www.laborknowyourrights.com all one word, labornowyourrights at gmail.com. If you have comments about an episode, a suggestion for a future episode, or questions that you would like answered, feel free to contact me there. On the website, there is a page with a form on it that you can fill out and submit, and I'll receive it immediately. Or you can send it via email, which I'll also receive immediately. Thank you very much. Also, it would be much appreciated if you could go to iTunes and rate and review us. That makes it easier for others to find our podcast. And to wrap this one up, I'd like to thank our sponsor, the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first.